0: I you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember! I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer! Cancer? Yes, in the head! Huh? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to
1: that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine?
0: You? This is the Stupid Cancer
2: Show.
3: Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs>
4: Hello
0: there. Hey, hey, kids! <laughs> People seem to like me
1: because I am polite and I'm rarely late.
2: And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Not that
0: there's anything wrong with
2: us. Because he has a lot of chip spots.
0: <laughs> All
2: right.
1: Monday, December 9th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co host, Matthew Zachary. I'm a proud 17 year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And
3: I'm your co host, Annie Goodman, journalist, young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show.
1: Welcome back, Annie Goodman.
3: Welcome back. Woo-hoo!
1: It is not okay. That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time.
0: Yeah, I'm Kenny Kane, co founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first time and returning listeners on the Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. All righty, tonight's show, Adolescent and Young Adult Programs in the Real World in Actual
1: Hospitals. The AYA movement has fostered big changes in clinical practice. Really? Yes, really. Join us tonight as we welcome leadership from Oregon Health and Science University's Knight Cancer Institute, Doctors Rebecca G. Block and Brandon Hayes-Latin, himself a young adult survivor, We'll be on the show.
3: And I'm Maureen Sweet, Chief Everything Else Officer at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodeck, so send me your questions and feedback anytime using hashtag SCRadio. Radio. G., energy, G., Annie G. I'm here. Welcome
1: back. Thank what you. What the hell happened to you?
3: I got really sick of you guys. Yeah, I
1: know. We have that effect on people.
3: Yeah. I got a little cancer again a little very unexpectedly um i'll try to tell my whole story without having a menopause breakdown
0: (laughs) um the the new normal
3: yeah my new normal is uh abnormal is insane mood swings so uh
1: would it make it any easier to tell the story if i added the uh if i if i rick rolled it
3: no. <laughs> so I had breast cancer
4: two
1: years ago, and all of a sudden I felt this lump. All right. No, sorry. Go ahead. Uh,
3: so, uh, as I've mentioned before on the show, uh, I had breast cancer almost two years ago, and I do have the BRCA1 mutation. So, I frequently am screened for ovarian cancer, and I go every six months, in addition to my bazillion other appointments I go to, to make sure that the breast cancer hasn't come back and everything's still stable. And uh, I got my ultrasound and uh, got a phone call. Like an, the radiologist was weird and said, "Okay, you can go." And I was I left very unsettled. But she said, she's like, Just, "She's like you can go." And I was like, "All right." And then I, almost as soon as I got to work, I got a call that I needed to see my I need to go see my doctor immediately. And I was like, "That is not good. Something something bad's about to happen." And um, I went to the doctor, I went to see my gynecologist, and she said you have an 11 centimeter mass in your right ovary. And I was like, 11 centimeters, that is enormous. And she kept asking if I was having symptoms, and uh, I was actually feeling pretty okay. As everybody know, everybody has heard, ovarian cancer is known as a silent killer because the symptoms are extremely vague. Symptoms are heartburn, uh, indigestion, nausea. And fatigue.
1: Is that like Viagra's symptoms too?
3: That's basically like my entire life. Right. So, and not to be TMI, I was like slicking a period. Nothing nothing weird was going on. So I was completely like, you have to be kidding me. And um, they said it was very concerning to them of what it might be. So then I went to go see my oncologist and I saw a gynecological oncologist. She showed me an ultrasound where she was concerned. That what was inside my ovary was cancerous because it had uh, a blood supply. It had irregular borders. And when you've had cancer and you've lived through this world, when you hear those words, you know that something bad is growing inside your body. So uh, then CT scans and talking to my doctors and experts and people who have had ovarian cancer and seeing fertility specialists and, you know, just trying to comprehend what's happening I decided to have a hysterectomy and um that so I had that surgery and it sucked and I will say that I think that surgery was worse than my mastectomy in a bunch of ways and um you know I had the surgery went home the next day uh expected a pathology report to find out if it was Breast cancer that metastasized to my ovary, which they didn't think it might be because everything else looks clear, or if I had a new primary ovarian cancer. So, now almost a month after my surgery, we still don't know what kind of cancer I have. Why? Because the tumor, uh, it looks like my... I had triple negative breast cancer, so the tumor in my ovary is not expressing any hormones. And... um the tumor in my ovary, the slides look like my breast cancer tumor, but because of the BRCA mutation, these tumors can look extremely similar if not identical but still be two separate primaries.
1: So it takes longer to get a pathology
3: on them. They might never find out if this was breast or ovarian cancer. I'm going to see other you know some very highly specialized doctors next week. Hopefully they could differentiate theirs the, apparently, the way the tumor was, it didn't quite look like a breast cancer metastasis, but it didn't quite look like ovarian cancer. My breast cancer markers were normal before my surgery, but my ovarian cancer markers were off the charts, and um, we just don't know. And from what we can tell, it's nowhere else in my body. Of course, you never know where there could be you know, microscopic cells, but from a pretty extensive scan... Um, it appears that everything else is normal. So we don't we don't know yet and it's been um, very frustrating and really scary and
1: so what's the all right so we have best and worst case in, yeah. in the bell curve here. So you have the tumor mm-hmm. everything that it was is now no longer in your body.
3: As far as as far as they can tell. Yes. Right.
1: Correct. So that is essentially the good part of the right. bell curve.
3: And my lymph node, when I did the surgery, they, they biopsy everything they took out. All the lymph nodes are normal. I didn't have any fluid. I didn't have any ascites. I, my other ovary was normal. Fallopian tubes, uterus, everything else was fine. So.
1: And then the catastrophic crisis side, which only Jews care about, yeah, is?
3: That it is breast cancer, which has metastasized to my ovary. So, and what would that mean? That would mean that... It might not. So it's so frustrating because I keep asking them, like, is this, you know, my doctor's been in practice for like 30 years, and she's never seen this before. She's never seen someone. I just finished treatment literally like a year ago, and she's never seen anyone have uh, something like this grow so quickly in such a short amount of time because I go every six months and my ovaries checked. It was completely normal six months ago. My C125 was normal, which is the blood test. My ultrasound was normal. Everything was fine. So it's unusual to have a breast cancer metastasized to an ovary. I didn't even think that was possible. So it's extremely rare for that to happen. And ovarian cancer, even with having the BRCA mutation, is very rare to have it at 32 years old. So they um, are a little stumped as to why this happened. Um, There is definitely a chance that I have stage four breast cancer. Whether it is still in my body is we don't know. Um, we have a backup plan for tre- I have to have IV chemotherapy again That's you know, no Is question Is that guaranteed? Yes Okay Because even if it was stage So stage one ovarian cancer uh, If you have grade one or grade two You don't need chemotherapy Mine was grade three Because that's what BRCA mutations do It right. makes you develop extremely aggressive forms of cancer And um, you know if it's ovarian cancer at stage one If it's breast cancer at stage four And I'm like these are my options Cool
1: yeah. So, um uh, And yet your shirt that you're wearing tonight on the radio, yes, says life is beautiful. It
3: is. You take it for granted because the first time you're diagnosed with cancer, you're you are like, "Holy shit, I can't believe this happened." But it's behind me, yay. And then it happens again and you're like, "Wow." Yeah. Like, "I might not be okay." Mhm. And um but things are different
1: yeah. now. Two years ago, you didn't know yeah. anyone in the world. And now right. you have like an army of BFFs.
3: I do. I have... I've made a lot of contacts, and I have have not been shy in asking everybody I've met in the nonprofit world for help because of people have told me, like, you volunteer a lot of your time and raise tens of thousands of dollars for cancer causes, so I... Uh, I've been hitting up everybody I know for opinions and where I should be going and who I should be seeing and uh, basically anything I can do because all I really want to do, my goal is to live a long life. It is very sad that, you know, I have zero chance of having a biological child. It is, you know, I should probably be more upset about it than I am. Uh, the idea of being, being pregnant grosses me out, so I'm kind of okay with not carrying a child. But... um, I'm my goal throughout this whole thing. And I told my doctor that when I was, you know, my doctors were trying to convince me to keep my other ovary in and perhaps, you know, conserve organs that were appearing to be normal on scans. And I told them, I was like, I need to live and I need to live a long life. I need to live as long as I can. And if that means, you know, taking out a ton of organs in my abdomen, fine, do it. You know, what good is holding on organs to try to have a biological child it's going to end up killing me in the end. So, um, you know, I'm trying to stay as positive as I, as I can. It's, it's very hard, especially I went to the doctor last week, and we um, had a serious discussion, and one of the things she said to me, which was part refreshing, but part very, very scary, was we don't know if you're going to be okay. And it takes your breath away when someone says that to you
1: but this is narrative this is the story you are again you have not ever not been the young adult right. affected by cancer and right. your conversation right now here and now about fertility yeah it's so unique to our age group and mm-hmm. people still don't get that yeah so the,
3: we had a lot we had a lot of discussions i met with a fertility specialist and he was amazing And, um, you know, the discussion that we had was, and the whole entire time talking to my doctors was the goal is to keep you alive. And when I had breast cancer, it was like, the odds are in your favor, you'll be fine. But now we're having discussions, like our goals are for you to not die. And like, this is so, it's surreal to have to hear that. But the, uh, you know, the fertility specialist was really great. Um you know my options I was not comfortable with them cuz they all involved a lot of risk and um I wanted to be aggressive I was I'm not willing to take any risk for my health so I took the aggressive route rather than take the you know conserving fertility part and um he told me he said you know one day this will all be behind you and you'll be able to start a family whether it's with a donor egg and you know, you'll be able to figure it out or adopting and, you know, going to the hospital and picking up a kid, like pretending this. and I could literally tell my children when they asked the baby's comfort. I like, this stork dropped you off.
0: Right. Yeah. But
3: you know that I'm okay with all of that. And I know that I'm unique where some people fertility is incredibly important to them and they're more willing to that. Right. And it's such a personal decision. Whatever you decide is fine. I don't criticize anybody for decisions they make, but um, I just had to do, I was I was so I was so scared when I was going through all this. I was like, just do whatever I have to do so that I don't die, and that I'm okay, and that I don't have to worry about this coming back or whatever. And you know, I don't know if it's going to come back. I don't know if it's going to if this you know BRCA mutation disease that I have is you know I'm just gonna I'm a tumor factory. I don't know. My doctor gets really pissed off when I say that, but I don't I don't know what the future holds. But I feel like I've had to make decisions that. Help me, help give me a future.
1: So, we're gonna keep talking about this. And yes. Every time you're on the show, we will keep talking about this, and the world will know Truman Show style exactly what you're going through. And I also want to bring up that we'll talk about your uh, give forward page. Yes. Because we want to help raise a shit ton of money for you as well. Yeah. To cover these ridiculous expenses.
3: Because the the other hand of them not being able to come up with a diagnosis is I have to keep doctor hopping. So I'm going to a second cancer center next week, and then um, I'm at least probably going to go to a third and potentially a fourth, and they both involve traveling, and God only knows what my insurance is going to have to say about me going to all these, you know, hospitals and getting scanned and rescanned and whatever tests I have to do. So, um, you know, I finally felt like I was in a place where I was coming back from, you know, Cancer, whether you go, how many times you go through it, it, is financially ruining. Yes. And I was, I finally felt like I was getting on my feet a little, ba- a little bit from the first time I had cancer. So if this happened a second time, I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. But at the same time, it really makes you, like everyone says that you have cancer or changes you. It does. When you have cancer a second time, it really changes you. And, uh, you know. Well. That's it. That's what I got Well, for that's now. not it. That's
1: that's for now. For now. That's but for now. We love you. Thank you. You know that. Love I'm glad that too. we exist for you at this point in time in your life. And we're not going anywhere, so you're not going anywhere. Okay. Because even if we have to drag you, uh, you know.
3: Like um, Weekend at Bernie's Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 It'll be Weekend at Annie's here on the Stupid Cancer Show. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I cross mean, some I, barriers I, there. Make,
3: I make some really morbid jokes. I can't help it. It's
1: okay. Okay, I, that might be a band name then, Weekend in Andy's. <laughs> okay. All righty then.
0: Matt's playing Lollapalooza by himself.
3: Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> <a new> <laughs> oh,
0: God.
1: All right. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, Danielle Taylor, age 23, was diagnosed on August 17th of this year with colon cancer in the lower rectum. She is a stand-up comedian. She's taken a rather very unique approach to dealing with a disease through humor and just an outright character... Uh, she's amazing. I'd like to welcome her to the Stupid Cancer Show. Danny Taylor, please join us. Here you go. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so uh I was quite taken aback when I was made aware of your uh, I'll say antics, but it's more like cantics. I I can't make words up here. But y- <laughs> you you're you know, you just heard uh Annie talk about her her uh I won't call it a relapse or a recurrence. We it's don't know a, what it is. Whatever it is, but the fact that we're yeah, just yeah, you're oh, kind
5: of living like my future nightmare scenario. Like my heart really is like freaking out for you. Well, and the, I'm on the same page with the menopause, like, like hormone whatever right now. Like I am so out of control with myself. So if I just burst into tears, that's just gonna be fun for everybody.
1: So you were, but my whole the, the this is how younger people deal with the ridiculousness of this disease. We're not crying in the shower. We're not listening to dying pets commercials. We don't want fiddles underscoring our, <laughs> our, our sentiments or violins or whatnot. Uh, and you're no exception to that. So why don't you talk us through the origin story? What, was ha- what happened on August 16th, <laughs> the day before you were diagnosed, and your life up to that point?
5: Well, I'm like one of those horribly unlucky people. (laughs) I feel like I'm like a bad Degrassi character where it's like there's too many things that have happened at this point. Um, It's not so surprising that I've got cancer, like when I think about it. For me, I've grown up in a town called Sarnia, Ontario, and it's also known as the Chemical Valley. Like that's like a real name for this town. It's a big, like pollution nightmare um and so earlier in the summer i had like brad badly hurt my leg and i thought that i had overdone it on like pain medication and maybe given myself an ulcer or, or something along those lines because i was having a lot of digestive issues after i got the cast off and just like trying to live my life but i kept pooping blood and it was gross and horrible and uh, i went to like a walk-in clinic at first just like looking for some kind of explanation, maybe, like, a pill that would just, like, make it go away. Uh, I got given antacids and walked away. Probably um, told you then, it had
3: hemorrhoids. Yeah.
5: So that was really fun. Um, I was teaching at, like, I returned, like, I was living in Toronto at the time going to school. I returned home for a week to teach at a summer camp for kids. Um, I teach, like, improv and acting and whatnot. And I was just, like, so sick i was eating about like a little thing of yogurt every day and maybe a banana and i couldn't tell how much exactly how much weight i had lost i'd always been kind of a heavier person um but i was like really starting to sin out and like now i think i've probably lost about 65 pounds since july i'd say so i'm looking great but it's a little weird um So I went into the emergency room because my mom was like, "Enough's enough. Like, you're not eating. You're obviously in pain. Go deal with it. I had the good grace of having, like, a really young doctor who didn't shut me down immediately or just, like, give me antibiotics and send me on my way. She was, like, very concerned with getting, like, a stool sample, blood tests. Um, Like, she – it came back for, like, high inflammation in the blood. And so she thought I had Crohn's or colitis, so – send me for a colonoscopy I figure well maybe I'll have Crohn's I'll deal with it like it, like I did some reading about it all the symptoms kind of fit it's like you know that's fine I can deal with that um, met with the like gastro specialist right before like going in for the uh, for the colonoscopy went through my family history did have a little bit of colon cancer in like older males where it like makes sense for them to have that kind of disease, like my great-grandfather or my great-uncle, things like that, um, my doctor pretty much promised me, it was like, no way it's going to be colon cancer. I've never seen it in anybody your age. And then when I woke up, there was just a weird energy in the room. Uh, I could tell that, like, something was not right. Um, she showed me pictures of, like, a mass that they found, and it looks like how you'd imagine cancer looking, just furious and they biopsied the crap out of it, uh, came back positive for cancer, did a bunch of other scans and whatnot, and then we started treatment.
3: And what was your treatment after did you have to have surgery and chemotherapy? What did they end up, how did they end up treating you?
5: So what's happened so far, September, um, like uh, I'm doing all my stuff mostly in London, Ontario at the London Regional Cancer Center. And we realized that we'd have to do pelvic radiation and chemo in order to shrink the tumor enough that it was operable. So that's, at this point, it's rendered me infertile. So I've like started menopause about two weeks ago. Losing my mind.
3: Um, I started so last I, week. I feel. I seriously. I I literally feel your pain.
5: It's awful. The hot flashes like will make me vomit. I started <laughs> on estrogen this week, so it's like sort of working out. I can't stop, like, the stupidest things make me cry. My doctors probably think I'm the most insane person because I spend my entire appointment just openly weeping and cursing and swearing. But I just, like, I can't keep myself together in the hospital. It just pisses me off so much that I'm there. Um, But September was all about fertility, so I was able to get my eggs retrieved. Um, We kind of talked about, like, how much time they'd give me. Uh, they said look into it. They don't know if they're going to be able to do it in time. I was given, like, a deadline of about 10 days to mm-hmm. see if I could do it. And if I couldn't do it, turn around, and we start treatment. Um, and luckily, I was on just the right day of my period, and the doctor bent off at T-Cart Clinic in Toronto. Uh, was good enough that we just, like, hammered in the hormones, and we happened. it turns out I, I was at one point very fertile, so I got a good, like, egg count. And they're all frozen and healthy, and gonna kick around for somebody to surrogate for me later. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, I like the fertility thing. Like that is killer. I like it just kind well, of restructures what I was thinking for a future and like timelines and deadlines, and it makes you grow up really fast.
3: Yeah, it's one um, of the issues that we're all hit with really, really hard. Unfortunately, it's one day you wake up, you go, you get dressed, you go to the doctor, and then you're told you have cancer, and it's like your whole life is turned upside down. And, you know, the fertility aspect is extremely difficult because it also brings up, you know, dating and future and discl- what, disclosing information, and it's it sucks. Yeah. But I'm glad you were able skinny. to do treatments, though, because... You know, uh, a lot of people don't know about fertility treatments and they start chemotherapy and then it's too late or the eggs they have left aren't viable or sperm or whatever it is, that you, whatever, you know, you're going through. And it sucks and, you know, take effects there for the uh, hot flashes. I hear they help. I don't get hot flashes. I feel like I'm going to get like people are going to like get, hit me with a voodoo doll, but I don't get hot flashes. <laughs> but I get everything else. So don't worry. I'm like blind. I can't see. So, yeah. Menopause has oh. hit me in different ways. Yeah, it's got my vision, but heat, I'm okay. No hot flashes yet. Don't worry, I'll probably have one in about a half so hour. So,
1: Danny, I wanted to mention, you know, your your stand up act is on uh, YouTube. I, I'm not sure which uh, platform I saw it on, but your your you... um,
5: there's one on YouTube and there's one on Vimeo. Vimeo, uh, I've right? Two now
1: so far. So, you have a background in theater or a background in acting? What's what's what was your uh, your undergraduate?
5: um like i'm a theater student at york university like a big like musical theater nerd freak kind of person um i was doing a lot of improvs and i've always wanted to do stand-up i just could never like ball up and do it i just kept like writing and like thinking about it and going to see shows and sitting at the back of the room on open night night and i was in the bet like i in a great city to do it toronto has got a good scene for it i lived Literally about four houses down from one of the biggest comedy bars in Toronto, and I could never do it. And then I got diagnosed with cancer, had to move back home to like crappy Sarnia, Ontario, to financially like deal with this. And as like now I've got the nerve because you know why wait at this point?
1: Well, as a as a quick non sequitur, I don't know if you uh, have HBO, but on t- tonight at nine o'clock Eastern, there's a special 90 minute Sondheim. Uh, thing going on.
5: Ooh, I don't have HBO, but I will probably find it through other means.
1: Okay. But, uh... Just, just all right. And <laughs> end of notes from one musical theater major to another, and uh, non Um So, how ha- ha- how have you been able to leverage humor to tell your story? On top of the fact that I mean, we work very closely with a lot of young adults uh, facing colorectal cancer and rectal cancer. And there's an inherent, you know, uh, attitude toward that. And it's, there, there's, uh, embarrassment factors and whatnot. How have you been able to own that by your stand up or how you've chosen to, 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 uh, uh, effectively emote around that?
5: I guess I've always been someone that tended towards darker humor. Um, I'm a bit of a, like depressive person at heart as much as I like to laugh through my stuff. Um, I, like, I'm kind of a dark person, and I don't know, it's just, like, it seems so surreal to get diagnosed, and I was, like, of course I've got, like, the grossest kind of cancer you can have, <laughs> it's, like, oh, my God, how'd you find out you have cancer? I was, like, well, I was, like, shitting blood for <laughs> however long. It's, like, yeah, so that's cool, or it's, like, no, I literally, like, soil my pants. That was great, you know, so it's just, you, I don't know. I had to laugh at it, or else I was just going to lose my mind, so... I also felt pretty isolated in my experience. I was having difficulty finding anyone my age going through it. Um, I walking around at the cancer center in London. I am definitely a standout. There's not many people my age, so it's a very lonely feeling. And I just like felt like maybe if I got on stage and talked about my poop and like or my nice sex life now or whatever, it might help somebody else someday and not feel so isolated in this experience
3: well that's what we're here for what what
1: has been the reaction from the crowd i'm sure that they're not used to people being so open about rectal cancer from the humorous <clears throat> perspective
5: well sarnia is not a comedy town to begin with so like it's already like weird doing sets like they're not like trained they're not like a good comedy audience <laughs> per se So it's already like a little bit of work, and both of my sets I did during treatment uh, towards the end of, uh, I did, I think, seven weeks of chemotherapy, like a pill form, so it was like a lot easier than it could have been, and uh, pelvic radiation, and I would not recommend pelvic radiation to anyone, it's awful, Um, so I was very high, which made it a lot easier, (laughs) Um, but the first set I did at a restaurant while people were eating, so that was like really fun to watch people like try and put shrimp into their mouths while I'm talking about like pooping blood anal sex and like just disgusting whatever stuff and just I don't know. Part of me like I was okay with if I didn't get any laughs and it just made people feel weird in their bodies. Sometimes that's the goal. So <laughs> if the I goal. don't get to have like a fun, glamorous time, neither do you
1: it's good. Well, I have about a minute left, so uh, is there a website or a blog you can share with people now that they can check out after the show?
5: Um, You can find me on Twitter at at d t a y l. Uh, it's like a play on Danielle Taylor, which is my name, or you can find me on Facebook too, uh, Danny Taylor. I don't have like a like page or a website because I'm just getting started, but I'll get there eventually, I hope.
1: Well, I'm really glad that you you obviously are a very courageous person. You're doing a lot of really exciting things that I would consider disruptive, but not unexpected of young adults, especially college students going through cancer. And I applaud you for being so uh, honest about what's going on. And it's okay to shock people. If I'm eating shrimp, it's gross to begin with, let alone having someone else tell rectal jokes behind my back. But at the same time, <laughs> it's important that people get the message and... You are commended by everyone here for doing just that.
5: Well, thank you very, very much. Um, I've got my surgery in about a month, so everyone, like, cross your fingers for me that I don't have a poop bag for the rest of my life, and uh, that would be great.
1: Well, Danielle Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show. We will definitely be in touch over Twitter, and I believe there's a a Facebook group, a private Facebook group just for young adults with CRC, and I'll see if we can get you involved in that.
5: Perfect. Thank you very much.
1: All right. You take care well, of yourself. I wish you the best of
5: luck, Annie, with, like, everything that's happening to you right
3: now. Thank you very much. Good luck to you, too.
1: And enjoy Canada.
5: <laughs> I will.
1: It's cold <laughs> and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Come to us. Come to All us. All right. All right. Yay. Danny Taylor, everyone. Yay. All right. So let's get to the news here really quickly.
0: Hello. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer.
1: Just the facts, ma'am.
0: Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you anything out. Can he? As I stumble over words. And Tuck Willow's not even in the uh, the list tonight. All no. right. Anyway, we have meetups coming up in Billings, Montana, St. Paul, Minnesota, in New York City, and Cancer Palooza in Marina del Rey, happening on December twentieth. It's going to be awesome.
1: Very awesome. All right, registration for the seventh annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is live. And we already have, Maureen, we have an account.
3: Yes, OMG Summit is our Twitter account.
1: Now, how many registrations? Uh, we registration? have
3: 22 people coming.
1: 22 people, registrations yes. in the first couple of days. That is awesome. We are 1% of our goal.
0: You can make us get to 2%. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
1: hang on. So it's
0: uh, the OMG Summit. Tell me more about this event.
1: Yes, this a reported event happening next April in Las Vegas is the largest young adult cancer conference in the world. Three and a half days of workshops, plenaries, social events, and networking. Visit omg2014.org and don't forget about the Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship. Again, omg
0: 2014 We'll see you there. All right, Matthew, everybody loves a good sale. Right now we have 30% off in the Stupid Cancer store until the day after Christmas for some reason. I don't know, you just decided that's when going to end. (laughs) It's time to stock up on your holiday gear because everybody looks good in Stupid Cancer merch. Everyone, surf on over to StupidCancerStore.org. It's our countdown to Christmas sale. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer.
1: And finally, the Stupid Cancer Show that you're listening to right now is live, all-new broadcasting in stunning HD radio. We know you can't listen to each show live, so be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple iTunes Podcast, or right here on Blog Talk Radio. Visit StupidCancerShow.org anytime to get connected, and thank you for listening. And that, and that is, is your, your Stupid, Stupid Cancer News. Alright, we got some characters coming on the show now.
0: In addition to the characters that are already here. Well, we only... It's
1: like that... What's that? CBS characters welcome? Okay, Brandon Hayes-Latin is a young adult survivor of testicular cancer. He is one of the leading oncologists in the country... Uh, treating blood cancers and stem cell transplants uh, and he brings a wealth of information to the table about all the changes that have been going on a founding member of the Livestone Young Little Alliance and keynote speaker at OMT 2009 going retro here, joined by Rebecca Block, a psychosocial researcher who works with Brandon at the Knight uh, Cancer Institute at Oregon Health and Science University. Uh, she is a uh, BR I don't know what called, BR BIRC. She'll explain what this word is, scholar, studying decision-making about fertility preservation in young women with cancer, among other myriad incredible credentials. Please welcome to the show, doctors, Rebecca Block and Brandon hayes Latin.
0: Welcome. All right,
1: Rebecca, what is B-I-R-C? You caught me off guard here with this large acronym. What does that mean?
2: Sir, it's actually pronounced BIRCH. It's a... uh, Career Development Award that is offered through the um, Institute of Health um, to support young researchers in studying issues in women's health specifically.
1: So it basically makes you even more awesome.
2: <laughs> well, it certainly allowed me to do the work that I was able to do looking at fertility preservation decision making among adolescent and young adult women
5: who were survivors.
1: That's really awesome. So, uh, and Brandon, welcome back. It's been a while.
5: Yeah, I'm glad to be back.
1: Uh, You're so important, Doug Ullman retweeted that you're on the show tonight.
4: Yeah, well, you know, uh, the more people, the merrier, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I really was excited to get you guys on the show after having just seen you again at Critical Mass in Cleveland. And uh, I think that there's been so much progress and so much change that we needed to have a cancer center on the show tonight to talk about what has pragmatically and meaningfully happened on the day-to-day in the ground, in the trenches at the cancer centers to help the young adult. And there is really no better place, no no more uh, better example than what you guys have put together at OSHU. So why don't you uh, feel free, open show, open mic. So talk to us about where are we now, where we've been, and what's changed for young adults in the clinic.
4: Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt. it's a, it's uh, been a really exciting period because, you know, I guess the way I would sum up the the movement both at our Cancer Institute, the Knight Cancer Institute, and really kind of across the country, is, is sort of this move from a problem of awareness to really digging into programs. You know, I think – probably the last time I was on the stupid cancer show, which was unfortunately quite a while ago, you know, really our big goal was um getting healthcare providers, whether it's doctors, nurses, social workers, everybody, to think of young adults as different, um and to be prepared for them. Um it was really an awareness campaign. Uh and I think at least in parts of the country and certainly in our cancer institute, um, we've largely done that work. Um, so now we're getting really specific about uh programs and services and Rebecca
2: well what what I think is also exciting is that it's not only us um and early on, there were only you know a really small handful of a y a programs. At academic institutions like ours Um, and I was recently able to do this great project looking at programs across the country to see what other programs are doing Um, and we identified at the time 20 programs which isn't even all of them and those are the ones that I was able to connect with and interview, but 20 different programs who, well, you know, programs are looking a little different. It's like Brandon said, they're really focused on what it is that AYA's need, how to deliver it in their specific setting. Um, And it's less about just trying to, you know, make enough noise so someone turns around. So that project was exciting because we were able to see just how many different institutions are doing so many different things to address pretty much the same issues, um, which is where the programs really align, is everyone sort of understands what the challenges are, and now it's about what's the best way to address those challenges. Um, And that's actually, those are data that we're working on a manuscript for right now, so that will be published hopefully in the next few months, so everyone will be able to have a look at those. But it's exciting to to hear what these 20 programs are doing um, and how they are addressing these issues, and then what are we going to do together to make sure that we're all really doing the best that we can and what does that mean or what does that look like
3: I'll open this up to Brandon so I just went through all this um, about a month ago because I had to have a uh, a hysterectomy uh, with not a lot of notice and one of the things I know I fell upon when I was going to the doctor luckily my first appointment with the fertility specialist was covered by my insurance but when the fertility doctor gave a print, and I have pretty good, you know, I work for a big corporation, I have really good health insurance. So when they printed, they did a printout of what is covered for, uh, you know, by my insurance, by seeing this doctor, and I was going to have to have surgery that was going to completely wipe me out fertility wise, and I was trying to see what my options were. You know, unfortunately, I didn't really have a lot of safe options. But at the same time, I don't know that I would have even been able to afford it. And I'm 32, a professional job. You know, I'm not married, so I don't have a dual income. But what I think that's also the huge problem is even if, you know, you're able to safely do some sort of fertility treatments, it is so expensive that sometimes people have to make a decision based on financials. So what is something, you know, what are you guys working on to make that less of an issue for the adult movement?
4: So um, I guess there's a couple of things. So first of all, there are a couple of uh, programs in existence to help um, identify um, things like discounted fertility drugs for those procedures um you know uh, it, it is expensive but there are some financial assistance programs and the the i think the the largest and certainly the one I'm most familiar with is fertile hope through Livestrong. um i think uh beyond that um there's been a, a fairly aggressive movement um to look at uh lobbying payers and, and insurance companies uh to um include this as part of their cancer coverage um, unfortunately, in the past, um, uh, many payers didn't really think ahead. And, and so when a, a cancer patient had a, a fertility bill, it wasn't considered as part of their cancer. Uh, uh, it was really sort of reflected um, a fertility bill um, and sort of goes down a different pathway in, in the insurance company. Um, so, Livestrong and others have been lobbying insurers and, and large self-insured corporations to say, you know, really this should not be thought of as a fertility problem. This should be thought of as a cancer problem and and one that we are causing harm from. Um, and just in the same way that uh, cancer insurance pays for the other harms that a doctor might prescribe, like uh, nausea medicines for for nausea that we that we create, uh, or even breast reconstructive surgery after breast cancer um, operation that, that uh, a patient's need for fertility should really be thought of in the same way. There are some insurers and, and and corporations who've made that change, but obviously not enough. Um, And there's also been uh, at least some legislative efforts to, to mandate this as well.
1: So I, my question then is, uh, actually, it's both of you. The first part of the question is like a college exam, like part one of the question. has There have been so many, like you said, uh, clinics around the country that have started their own programs, I'm assuming from the grassroots, or is there a has there developed a national standard by which people can trickle down the wisdom to start these clinics, or is there no standard and we're working on one?
4: So there there are definitely standards. Um the the previous iteration of the organization Critical Mass, uh what 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 was called the Live Strong Young Adult Alliance actually published standards uh including standards for excellence in clinical care and standards for training of health professionals who you know interact with young people. Um and some of those have been uh even further boiled down. There's an organization called Change It Back that's actually um Beginning to recognize centers of excellence, um, and they've sort of boiled down those standards to four key um, components: uh, fertility issues, health insurance and financial counseling, uh, clinical trial participation, and psychosocial support. Um, I think one of the things um, that we look at is, you know, how has this been do- doing? How is this being done elsewhere in the world? Um, and uh, there are some models for that as well. Also, you know, in the United States, um, uh, our healthcare model is very fragmented, and so it's likely that each center and institution is going to come up with ways to fit those standards that that work for them, that that are unique to their setting. And we've done that here uh, at OHSU. Um, you know, we've we've really made some specific uh, efforts in those standards areas uh, that I'm happy to describe
1: yeah why don't you talk us through uh those the pragmatics there? What does it really look like inside a hospital when you have an a y a centered program?
4: yeah so our program is is largely a consult service um so rather than our program taking over the care of someone with sarcoma or leukemia or whatever uh the patient's you know primary medical team stays their primary medical team and we're an added consultant um to tackle the a y a issues so, for instance, fertility preservation, we have kits available in all of the clinics and wards where cancer patients are seen that has all the relevant information for either a male or a female uh, to help them with what they need to know and how they can um, make a decision about fertility preservation, and then for their team, how to actually get them plugged in, how to, how to make a, a, a consult with the reproductive endocrinologist. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, clinical trials particip- participation. We've, we've gone through the process of working through the system at our institution um, so that when a, when a research study is submitted to what's called the IRB, the Institutional Review Board that, that sort of approves a, a clinical trial, part of that process, they actually have to identify whether their clinical trial is asking an AYA-specific question. And if it is, it gets flagged. Um, so that researchers can, uh, you know, search for trials at OHSU based on whether or not they're AYA-relevant.
1: I'm also um, fascinated by... Rebecca, I don't
4: know, do you want to talk about... Yeah, I was going to
1: ask Rebecca. Specifically, I was fascinated. It's a perfect segue. Um, you're, if you're still doing the study on depression in young Latino with cancer, we're always talking about disparate groups and the unique cultural distinctiveness that comes with it from those communities. Uh, can you uh, p- paint that picture for us with the work you're doing?
2: Absolutely. So right now we have completed the initial study, which was a qualitative study um, interviewing young Latino men who were diagnosed with cancer and a support person that they identified as someone that they talked to or you know would talk to about difficult emotions. And um, in some ways what was most interesting that we found was that so much of um the expression of depressive symptoms looks uh, on one hand completely different than any other population and on the other hand exactly the same. And what I mean by that is a lot of the components that we would see studying another um, health issue and especially a mental health issue in uh, in a Latino community, we saw a lot of those things aligning, a big role of spirituality in terms of coping um, understanding why one got cancer from a spiritual perspective, um, looking towards family and community for support. All of those things were things that we would expect to hear. Um, on the other hand, some of the actual expressions of depression or depressive symptoms looked very different than the other adolescents and young adults who we see. Um, whereas with with young men across the board in depression we often see and kind of not reaching out. Um, And we did see some of that. At the same time, we saw this um, kind of parallel experience of you might not reach out to talk to people about how you feel, which is what we see more in young women, but you might actually reach out to look to people as a source of coping. So a lot of these young men in their interviews would talk about I have to do this and I have to get up every morning because of my children or because of my love. Um, But not necessarily talking to those people, but seeing those people as kind of a source of external motivation to continue on. Um, What I think the most sort of profound and at the same time completely expected thing that we found is that, it's not being, the symptoms are not being recognized as such um, because there is a stoicism and a strength, an outward and external sort of expression of strength that is expected and that these young men are fulfilling. And this was even, like, young men in high, you know, high school kids who were saying, well, I just had to put on a strong face and move forward. But the fact was they were probably clinically depressed at the time and could have been diagnosed and could have been helped in some way. Um, Which leads us to sort of the other challenge that, again, we all knew but no one had documented that I could find, which was that we're not diagnosing these young men with depression or with symptoms of depression. And even if we did, we we wouldn't know what to do to help them. Which is unfortunate because there are interventions that we know of that have worked and are very effective with young people who are depressed, with men who are depressed, and with Latinos who are depressed, but not necessarily young male Latinos with cancers who are depressed, because no one's ever tested out into any of those interventions. Um, which leads to the other challenge, which is getting young men to accept the intervention, which obviously means that the intervention needs to be something that's acceptable to them and acceptable to the community. So, The good news is that now we have a study that documents what depressive symptoms could look like, which might help us with identification and diagnosis where it's appropriate. The not so great news is what we have now documented is that we've got a lot of work to do that we don't really know how to do. So what should the intervention be and how do we get people to an intervention that's appropriate? Um, So that's all research that, that still needs to happen and is sort of laid out by the work that that we did. Those are also data that should be getting published soon, hopefully, sometime early in the new year. So that'll be um, kind of out in the world. We did have the opportunity to do a lot of um, local presenting on it. We have a very active um, organization here, Familia Senaxion, that serves um, Latino families with a variety of um, life-challenging health conditions, but they specifically have a navigator who works with adolescents and young adults, so they have this interest. And we actually did this research study in conjunction with them. They were the kind of the leader. Um, I was just a researcher um, in working on this project. So our plan is to move this forward and continue working with them to try to start addressing the problems at least locally, and then once we sort it out, hoping that that's something that we can then kind of broadcast and, and would work in other communities. Um, but it did mean we had a great vehicle to get the word out, you know, at least here in, in the northwest and Portland metro community that we were able to share these these data and kind of what we thought that meant and what we saw some of the next steps as, and that we have this great organization that really would be a great way to support these young men, but also to start kind of helping with the diagnosis process and routing them into an appropriate intervention as soon as we figure out what that is.
3: Yeah, and that kind of leads us to, you know, the bigger picture, um, and I can open this up to Brandon, of how you get this out to other cancer centers. It's great that you guys are doing this, but we hear horror stories all the time about people who aren't, you know, are told about their fertility, wants it's too late, or, you know, And or their doctors don't even broach the subject. People don't know that they're supposed to ask. So how do we get and what are you guys doing to make sure that other doctors are treating young adult cancer patients in a different way and addressing fertility?
4: Yeah, I think um, uh, many of us are working hard on that. I think um, sort of one of the central homes for people to learn about, you know, programs and, and how to do it. Um, is the organization Critical Mass. So the Critical Mass is the Young Adult Cancer Alliance and really brings together a a great mix of of both doctors, you know, sort of healthcare providers um, uh, and representatives of medical institutions, along with um, patient advocate groups, uh, even the Stupid Cancer Show, uh, to sort of hear firsthand from patients and advocates what's needed and how to go about it. Um, There's also... a Society for Adolescent and Young Adult uh, Oncology which publishes a journal Uh, and so that's another way to get uh, sort of in the uh, uh, in front of um, healthcare providers Uh, but we've worked with um, other professional societies so ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology is sort of the major home for uh, medical oncologists uh, in the country and and really in the world Um, and ASCO uh, with our help um, actually did a whole series called Focus Under 40 uh, that was a continuing medical education series for oncologists. So I think there, you know, there are a number of ways to try to get uh, in front of uh, health care providers and, and let them know that this is an important need.
1: I mean, always the marketer that I am, I get up on stage all the time, and I tell people that a young adult diagnosed today is far better off than a young adult diagnosed even five years ago because of these standards And you just mentioned ASCO's focus on the 40 curriculum that the Alliance and you guys helped make happen. The NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, now has AYA guidelines, which at least is nice to have in writing. Like I said, the Oncofertility Consortium and all these efforts on Capitol Hill, and of course, the Society for AYA Oncology, are really big deals. I wanted to get your thoughts on something that happened last week, which you probably are aware of, where we're seeing so much um, traction in the young adult uh, clinic or the young adult program, but a young adult hospital by itself is something that I read that Seattle Children's has now opened. Are you familiar with this, and do you foresee this as being the next evolutionary step to close the divide for the generation?
4: So, um I, I am uh I'm I'm familiar uh with some of the pieces in Seattle. So, uh my understanding is essentially they they have a whole new uh, hospital, Seattle uh uh Seattle Children's has a whole new hospital and that one of those floors was designed and built out to be a, a young adult um, you know, specific space. I I think that um I I think there's a couple of of big challenges moving forward. So, like I said, I think this this notion of awareness is definitely not done, but there's, as we just described, there's a lot of efforts that have um, taken place so that, that hopefully the concept of AYA isn't news. Um, but it then comes to practical challenges of how you get it done, just just like, Annie, your question about, okay, so say I've got cancer and my team you know, does all the right things and, and gets me plugged into fertility right away. But the practical issue is, you know, the system hasn't solved it. It's it's too expensive, and there's no way of paying for it. So I think that it's really those practical issues that are are the most important next step. Um, It's one thing to say, well, you know, um, if there's an AYA clinical trial, uh, we have a way to list it and find it. But that's a step away from are we designing enough and appropriate KYA clinical trials, and so there's, you know, efforts from uh, groups like SWOG and the other NCI uh, cancer cooperative groups to, to do that. Um, I think the same thing is true with space. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, it's one thing if, if you have uh, the space and the money to, um, to build it out, I think it's awesome. Um, there's no doubt that it's easier for young people to find each other if they're in one space. Uh, and it's also easier to bring programs and services to one area as opposed to, you know, case the whole hospital. Um, but, again, until the sort of practical issues of, well, how is that financed and paid for are sorted out, uh, you know, I think that, um, unfortunately, those are still going to be uh, the exception instead of the rule for a while.
1: And I I, I agree completely. And going back to you mentioned swag. I'd like to talk about that. SWAG is the Southwest Oncology Group, and why don't you just tell our listeners what it is and your role with it? Because as I understand, it's making, uh, it's building a lot of consensus around this. Correct?
4: Yeah. So basically, the way, um, the way the NCI, the way the government um, runs uh, clinical trials in cancer is through a mechanism called the cooperative groups. And the cooperative groups are basically um, sort of high-powered institutions that get together and agree on um, how to design and, and run clinical trials so that they're, they're a- asking and answering the most important questions in cancer. And it turns out that um, that whole operation has just been restructured. And so there's, there's essentially four adult cooperative groups Uh, in the United States that are run by the National Cancer Institute, and then there's one pediatric one. So one of the four adult ones is called SWOG, and the pediatric one is called the Children's Oncology Group. Um, Within SWOG, uh, I chair a brand-new committee, an AYA committee. Uh, We're the only uh, cooperative group that has such a committee yet uh, on the adult side. Uh, There is an AYA committee in the Children's Oncology Group, and I work very closely with David Fryer, who's the chair of the, of the Children's Oncology Group. Um, we've been actually working directly with the NCI and also the other adult cooperative groups. And the idea is that we want to um, not just um, know, you know, what trials are being done by these other cooperative groups, but actually get together and specifically uh, design trials that, that ask and answer um, questions for young adults.
1: Excellent, excellent. So the the rabbit hole is, I'll swing this back to Rebecca for a second. The rabbit hole is um, now that we have standards and once we will ideally get them implemented on a larger scale, it opens up all these new doors, and Annie alluded to that. So the issues of insurance coverage and secondary risks and pumping your body full of hormones, and these are all e- kind of good problems to have because at least you should be given the option to do them, uh, what do you know about this new, if, if at all, I heard you can now freeze entire ovaries. Is that a new technology that you're aware of?
2: So that, aggressive technology specifically, it's freezing ovarian tissue, so they can take either some part of an ovary or an entire ovary, and they cut it into what they call our cortical strips, and then those are frozen. And then the tissue is then either reintroduced to this, to, into the into the abdomen, or it can be those egg follicles can be matured in other parts. Like when they this was a, is being tested in uh, non-human primates, and they often will um, uh, mature the egg in the in the monkey's arm because that's a you know a, a place that they can sew the cortical strip back on. But they have done it in the, the abdominal cavity as well. There are some challenges there specifically with that technology that are being Um, address and kind of the hot topic in that area right now is making sure that we're not, that they're not um, reintroducing cancer cells. Um, and so depending on the diagnosis and the the tissues that was removed, that, that may or may not be a viable option. The great thing about ovarian tissue freezing is that it doesn't take much time. So they can actually do the surgery, and you can start chemotherapy the same day or the next day, as opposed to the kind of the longer delay. Um, but I wanted a moment to address the rest of the rabbit hole, maybe, which is we have um, you know NCCN guidelines, and as um, Dr. Hayes-Laxton mentioned, the papers that were published under the Leukemia Young Adult Alliance. But what we don't have right now are um, good outcome data to say that the patients who are seeing this is the ways that they do better. So a patient who's seen in our AYA program, these are all the ways that their outcomes are better than a patient somewhere else. Um, And those are data that we certainly need to further these standards. um, And and that will also help programs say, well, this is how we're going to do it because this is how we know the, the outcomes are improved, and then we get to that next rabbit hole of, okay, great, everyone's still here because we can improve those outcomes substantially. Now, how do we make sure that in the long term, people have the opportunity to live full lives?
1: Brandon, you want to comment on that?
4: Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, I think Rebecca has it exactly right. I think that um, uh, I, I think our field um is really at a interesting place where again we're moving from the concept of just awareness um and and uh you know and attempts to um address the need to really becoming a lot more sophisticated in in program design and clinical trial design and all that really is about outcomes it's about proving that we can do better um not just that um that that we're uh you know jumping up and down about the problem and uh and there's a lot of momentum around that and i think the most important thing is that uh we really can improve outcomes um but as a secondary to that the the need to measure these outcomes is important because that's ultimately how we're going to turn around and get them paid for right so uh, if we want insurance companies to reimburse for the efforts that help young adult patients, we need to prove that the things that we're doing make a difference.
3: And how do you think that this is going to change? You know, is this something that possibly we could see? Everyone's talking about healthcare costs right now because of the healthcare law, everything that's going on, the issue of only sick people are going to sign up for the, you know, exchanges and the you know healthy people are just going to pay the penalty. I uh, you know do you think that the the care law which is going to help cover people who really need it do you think that will actually help the young adult cause especially regarding fertility? Uh
4: well there's no doubt that there's um you know serious aspects of the Affordable Care Act that help young adults, right? So um it if, if for someone who doesn't have insurance and now now can get insurance um it streamlines their access you know I think specific to whether uh iatrogenic infertility you know doctor caused infertility will be covered um, uh that's not really spoken to in the law, so um that's not the mechanism to to make that change um, but uh it's I, I think it's really a very important law for for all young adults, because you know, unfortunately, uh, cancer when it happens in a young adult is unexpected and often, you know, financially catastrophic. And and uh, the the ability to to have insurance to back that up, uh, I think is critical.
3: But do you think the law specifically that could be one of the ways that this has changed? Where you know, the law itself, the Affordable Care Act, has you know, has tremendously helped. Young adults, I think that's probably the group of people who have benefited the most from the law. Do you think that fertility could, you know, that's where we see a lot of this happening first and where a lot of the change is going to come from?
4: You mean if there was a law that that, cover, that mandated fertility? Yeah, like coverage? do
3: you think that, you know, given everything that's going on in healthcare now, do you think that that could almost get it moving faster, get all this, you know, the coverage and things moving faster? with well, the way the know, standards I, are and, you know the you know obviously we want to change the standards do you think they could get it you know actually see this come to fruition
4: so so on the one hand yeah i think if there was mandated coverage obviously that would make a world of difference and i would certainly be a proponent of that um on the other hand um because uh healthcare is so expensive and it's in the news as being so expensive um any added benefit is going to come under an extreme amount of scrutiny. So, um, so I, it, it, I don't know what the likelihood of, uh, you know, fertility mandates um, are uh, going forward. I, I would be very hopeful. I think there's a very sound argument for it. Um, uh, but, but um, you know, the Affordable Care Act itself doesn't doesn't address it.
1: Well, we have a few minutes left. I really wanted to just close out on a high note because, you know, Brandon, you and I are both young adult survivors, and we didn't really touch on that on this interview because you're just so damn famous. Everyone knows you already. But you are a, a, a oncologist pioneering young adult oncology who is a young adult cancer survivor, and that's, not, that, that's a really niche club to belong to. And uh, I haven't met many oncologists who are young adult survivors, but- Can you just talk personally about what it's been like for you to see all this change happen since the dark days?
4: Yeah. I mean, it it certainly is exciting. You know, um, for for me, um, when I was diagnosed, uh, frankly, the the, sort of the the medical piece, my chances of survivorship um, weren't, you know, obviously it it, it still hits you, but it wasn't really – um, the biggest issue for me um, the biggest issues for me were a lot of these practical things. So I, I did bank sperm because I had a potential risk to my future fertility. Um, uh, I was a resident at the time, so I was kind of stuck in my job, um, but I also couldn't leave my job because my health insurance was directly tied to it. Um, so, so there's a lot of these practical issues that I hadn't really considered uh, until it hit me. Um, and then as I started digging into it, really, I I found a whole community of other people who um, had found major crisis um, that was that was under-addressed. Um, that got me connected to Livestrong and really a whole community of, of young adults. Um, and again, I think what we've been able to do is organize these issues in, in a way that is compelling enough to get you know, everyone from an insurance company to the National Cancer Institute to ASCO to sort of the whole list of, of of heavy hitters that we've that we've talked about um interested and involved. So, you know, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, working on it for a decade seems like uh, a crazy long time for, for to to still having to still have these issues to tackle. But but really we've gotten a lot done. Uh uh you know, since my diagnosis. Um and I'm pretty excited about that.
1: I had somebody recently compare the young adult cancer movement to the AIDS quilt. And I don't know if that's fair, but I kinda like it.
4: Yeah. <laughs> okay. I <laughs> mean I think there's 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 definitely um there's definitely instances in medicine where there've been big change and rapid change and, you know, there's no doubt that we're trying to model some of those.
1: So let's let's then uh, toss it off to Rebecca to close it out. Uh, so we've we've come so far with with fertility rights and fertility and science. Uh, what's your vision uh, for the future with all the great work that you've been doing, and and what can we expect in the com- in the coming years?
2: I, I mean, on a on sort of a small scale level, based on the work that I've done um, specifically in decision making. I mean, the goal in that area was always that, that every young adult has the opportunity to make a decision, um, and while awareness is much improved, we're still not there, um, and by that, I mean that they're informed that their fertility might be at risk, and they have the opportunity to to make a decision as to whether they're going to take action or not. And then, of course, having the interventions that are effective and affordable and accessible and, and that have good outcomes. So using ovarian tissue freezing as an example is something that could help a lot in terms of accessibility for, um, for young women who need to start treatment right away, whereas right now we don't really have an option. Um, but first, we have to make sure that everyone even has the opportunity to make a decision. Because um, one of the interesting things that we found, actually, was that even young women who were faced with a decision where the oncologist says, your fertility might be at risk, you know, what what do you want to do? I really think we need to start treatment immediately. We're very concerned. And the young woman is like, well, then let's start treatment. You know, don't worry. I'm not going to mess around with this other stuff her emotional state and mental health outcomes are actually better than the young woman who was never asked, even though the decision was the same. Um, So I guess on that level, what my vision for the future would be that every young adult actually gets to make a decision. Um, and again, that the technologies and the accessibility of those technologies are, are keep up with the with these decision making opportunities. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of survivorship related issues, not just fertility. Um, Is that we have young adults kind of not being presented a decision in a way that they can understand or not being given a decision or not being appropriately coached to make a a good medical decision. Um, Because that's a whole other set of challenges for most young adults. They've never interfaced with the medical community and never, you know, had a medical crisis of their own. So really kind of making sure that, you know, those issues are getting addressed from the start. Um, that adolescents and young know, adults are active in their in their treatment and in the decision making, and with with their eyes on the you know on what's going to happen when when treatment ends and what they want that to look like and what the options are. So I guess that that might be more of a hope than an actual fortune for the future. But um, I, I think that we're we're doing I and mean, we as a larger community, the AYA community, is. And the movement is really doing all the things that, that we need to do to get us there. And as Brandon mentioned, critical mass, I think we can't underestimate the, the power of, of us interacting with each other, um, medical institutions and um, advocacy organizations, national and local. And I think just the fact that we're having the dialogue in the way that we are is what's going to make all the difference.
1: Well, no one doubts that the two of you aren't some of the most passionate people for the cause, and as an 18-year cancer survivor, I can't thank you enough for making it better for the next me. So uh, with that, we've been speaking with Dr. Rebecca Block, who is the Assistant Professor of Medicine of Hematology, Oncology, and AYA Oncology, and Dr. Brandon Hayes-Latin, the Medical Director of the AYA Oncology Program at the Oregon Health Science University's Knight Cancer Institute. Thank you both so much for joining us tonight, and take care of yourselves, and happy holidays.
4: Thanks for having us. You're welcome.
2: Thank Thank you very much.
1: All righty. Take care, guys. So, any final thoughts? I would imagine at this point everything's a trigger, and you're doing your best, and we're here to help you, and there's no platitudes that can make anything better or worse,
3: but... Well... So one thing I will say, what's really interesting is I did ask my um, fertility specialist, I said, can you just take my good ovary and freeze it whole? And they told me that they don't do that. It's very limited what centers do that. And I was going to have to like travel to St. Louis. And I a big part of it is the cost. It is a friggin fortune. Yeah. Even with, you know, a grant, it's like, okay, we'll give you $3,000. It costs like eleven thousand right, right, dollars, right? And then you have to like essentially pay rent on your eggs or yeah. embryos or mm-hmm. sperm. It's like a thousand dollars a year. It'll depend. I mean, I live. We, you know, I'm in New York City, so it's a little bit inflated. It might be a little cheaper. My sperm
1: is very expensive. It was like a studio apartment every year.
3: Yeah, a thousand dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like a thousand dollars a year. So you know, I don't. Know. It's it's such a frustrating issue because you know I walk into the I walk, I, I have to say one of the things. I felt was when I went to see the fertility specialist, I felt a lot sadder there than I ever felt sitting in an oncology office because everyone, because most of the people there aren't like pending cancer patients. They're people who just are, you know, normal families having fertility issues. But when I saw the printout from my insurance company about what it doesn't cover, the only thing it really covered was a consultation and one round of blood work because that was considered for a diagnosis. And that was it. Nothing else was going to be covered. And it was incredibly risky. And it's so frustrating that the, for certain types of cancers, you know, I was looking at a gynecological cancer or gynecological related cancers. We still don't know what the hell is wrong with me. Um, there's a lot of risk involved. And it's so frustrating. And I think a big part of it is, you know, there are a lot of people like me you know, whether you have a gynecological cancer or a mammoth testicular cancer, you sometimes just don't have those options. And I think that you really need to be given counseling of how to, you know, when you're, an adult, you're a young adult, just all your friends are having kids, and you're seeing that every day, and I, a lot of it's mental. A, lot, a huge amount of it is mental. I, one of my best friends growing up, had a baby the other day, and, you know, I'm very happy for her. I don't it's funny that I don't have like the jealousy because I know that I'm not really at that point. I, I'm not, you know, actively trying to have a child right now and I wasn't, in, you know, at the time. But um fertility is such an emotional issue for young adults and uh I hope that more doctors are talking about it and also that people are handling whatever their situation is well. Because a lot of it, and I really hope that people who are struggling with this remember that, you know, being alive sometimes is more important. And one thing that my doctor told me when I was going through all this, he said, one day I'll be behind you and you'll find a way to start a family. And I hope that people are also given those options as well, you know, surrogacy, donor eggs, donor sperm. I hope that people also, you know, while you're going through this traumatic thing, adoption, whatever, that they remember that there's other ways to start a family. Just because you don't, you know, push it out or whatever, have it naturally, doesn't mean that you're not a family. Wise That's words
1: all. from Andy Goodman. That's all. Deep thoughts.
3: That's what I got. have
1: Jack Handy.
3: This is like the most thinking I've done in a while. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually I just love like sitting in my apartment doing, I'm either at my apartment or at the doctor. Those are like the two places I've been in the past month.
1: Well, you're carbon neutral in Kenny's lack of thought so it's a good time tonight.
0: (laughs) Good. Yeah, I'm pretty thoughtless. On that (laughs)
1: note, it is time for our closing sequence.
0: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked?
1: And so, to all of you, a fond farewell.
0: Hooray, I'm helping.
1: You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, (laughs) you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
0: Okay, folks, that's our show, our 288th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer.
1: All right, I'd like to thank our guest, Danielle Taylor, and from Oregon Health Science University's Knight Cancer Institute, doctors Brandon hayes Latin, and Rebecca Block. Next week's show... Our penultimate of season 13, 2013, the one and only Geraldine Lucas, an American journalist, television producer, writer, author. At the age of 29, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, wrote a book called Why I Wore Lipstick to My Mastectomy, and has since become one of the most vocal advocates for the young adult cancer movement. Join us as we sit down with Geraldine for an exclusive 30-minute conversation about her remarkable life. And what she's been up to these days. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Or check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemo Deck on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and her whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here live. Next Monday. Good night, folks.
0: Have a great Good night. night.